I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Silicon Valley continues to grab the nation's attention. Even in a downturn, Northern California's innovation ecosystem from Apple to Facebook to Google is driving the way the world uses and even views technology, and with it, financial innovation. But just as the area's economic might has grown over the decades, its reputation has withered amidst growing frustration with the concentration of wealth, opportunity, and power that the area represents. Now, one of the most interesting takes in the larger conversation is coming from Ro Khanna, a rising star and progressive member of Congress whose district lies at the geographic epicenter of Silicon Valley. He's come out with a new book, Dignity in a Digital Age, that addresses the paradox and challenges of digitalization head-on, and he's made time to join the beat and to offer his thoughts on how to democratize not only innovation, but also opportunity. Representative Kana, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you, uh, Chris. Please call me uh, Ro. Informal, and so uh, looking forward to the conversation. Maybe we should just then, you know, start with the basics and about your book. Can you give us maybe a, a ten thousand foot overview of what's in it and what are you know for you the most important points? I think your framing at the outset is correct. Uh, there's eleven trillion dollars of market value in my district and the surrounding area, Apple, Google, Intel, Yahoo, Cisco, LinkedIn, Tesla. And the wealth has increased 40% during the pandemic. But for many Americans, they have been uh, shut out of modern wealth generation opportunities. They uh, have experienced outsourcing of jobs. They've faced uh, deindustrialization. They've seen their kids having to leave their hometowns to have uh, any economic uh, prospects. And so my book is an argument that we have to decentralize the technology economy, the modern economy. No one should be forced to leave their hometown to be able to get a good job. And you've got uh, 25 million of these digital jobs. They're not all software engineers, by the way. They're jobs in manufacturing, in retail, in healthcare. And the argument I make is how do we decentralize it uh, to be in communities uh, where people live? without uprooting them? And how do we get them into rural and black and brown communities across the country? You know, I was struck by the word dignity in the title. Um, That's a pretty weighty term uh, with sociological and even moral connotations that go to the state or quality of being worthy of respect or honor. And I think against the backdrop of your larger conversation on digitalization and technology, that's really interesting. But, But where does dignity fit in? Uh, it's obviously great alliteration, but but why did you make that the focus, you know, for the title of the book? Well, Chris, if you believe, as I do, that every person has intrinsic dignity, that uh, means that the political project uh, must consider uh, what we have to, to do to respect that dignity. And I argue that, that respecting dignity means two things. In an economic context, It means giving people the opportunity to contribute, to participate in modern wealth generation, 
in productive activity. And this means uh, making sure they have the opportunity for jobs and the opportunity for the right credentialing and access to those 25 million digital jobs and also have the healthcare and education to participate uh, in that activity. And then dignity, respecting someone's dignity also means that we affirm their citizenship and that it requires affirming it online, that they're not subject to manipulation, that their data isn't used to, uh, to support candidates against their will, that they are able to participate as equals in the modern public sphere of the digital world uh, and not suffer abuse and sexism and be uh, designed out of these conversations. So uh, that's why I use dignity. And a lot of my sense is that uh, for many people, it seems that technology is acting upon them, depriving them of agency as opposed to their being in control of uh, uh, technology opening up opportunities. And the book is really trying to affirm people's sense of control and agency in a digital age. You know, this is such an ambitious project you're taking on. Um, we'll get to some of the precise uh, arguments momentarily, but just the underlying premise of the book, that opportunity needs to be decentralized, that that it can't be hoarded. Um, it's one that really captures one's attention, especially when it comes from not just one of the smartest guys in Congress, but also the guy who represents the area. I can't help but imagine that uh, some people may have been a little uncomfortable about some of the um, pointed observations you make in your analysis and in the book. Have, have you heard back from some of the folks in the Valley about it? Well, Chris, ob- observations is diplomatic. There's some pointed criticism, and uh, <laughs> we, we, we have heard. I mean, I've, I, I had uh, someone uh, called uh, my chief and said, uh, Zuckerberg saying, if we got a major problem, if we've lost Kana, he's one of the people who gets it. And if we've lost him, he's on one of my interviews about uh, the book. And other uh, tech leaders, you know, they know that I'm a technology optimist at the end of, end of the day. I believe that technology will help us solve climate change. I believe technology can create huge jobs. But then uh, they disagreed with some of my positions on privacy, with some of my positions on uh, antitrust, uh, with some of my positions of affirming people's uh, right to participate in these forums without uh, undergoing huge uh, sexism, racism uh, in the conversation, uh, the ideas I have about having a much better public sphere on online. And I guess at the end of the day, I'm more rooted uh, in my thinking but with my grandfather who spent four years in jail during Gandhi's independence movement and is, is part of uh, Quit India in 1942 to 1946 uh, and was a Indian freedom fighter and more motivated, probably influenced by my upbringing in uh, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. I was born in Philadelphia, raised there, went to public school. And so it's left me with the sense of uh, humanistic values, with a sense of basic uh, values growing up in uh, in Pennsylvania. And I try to apply that lens in thinking about technology. How How is this serving uh, the larger aspirations of democracy? How is it uh, serving the type of folks I grew up with in, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania? What would they think of uh, a lot of these technologies? And I think that is the the intersection uh, which comes through, hopefully, in the book. Well, let's do that and jump directly into the book. Uh, one of the topics in the book is antitrust policy, and it's an area of interest that obviously reflects a larger national conversation on technology and what it means to have a concentration of power and, and, and what that implies for opportunity and self-determination, or as you note, dignity uh, in a digital age. 
What's your sense as to the optimal policy response for these behemoths? Um, what, what should the principles for 21st century antitrust policy be? Well, here's my perspective. Big is not bad inherently. I mean, sometimes you can have network effects. Sometimes you can have benefits to consumers. But what I have a major problem with is when some of these companies have acquired competitors to kill them. And the basic case is Facebook doing this with Instagram and WhatsApp. They feared competition. That should be illegal. And the FTC should look at unwinding that because you could have had more uh, discursive forms. You could have had more social media sites. The other problem I have is when companies discriminate against sellers. I mean, Amazon shouldn't have the right to just say, well, Rose Book shouldn't be on uh, Amazon. And they've taken actions against some sellers. Now, there should be an ability for Amazon to overcome a presumption against discriminating against sellers if they say something fundamentally offends their values, if they're asked to carry, for example, hate speech, uh, or if something is... uh, uh, violating their privacy standards or just they think is not good for the consumer experience. But there should be a presumption that they can't privilege their own products, that they can't discriminate against sellers. Those two basic principles, I think, would uh, make a big big difference. But even if we did that, that's not going to be uh, helping create wealth and opportunity in and of itself in Youngstown, Ohio, or in black or brown communities. And I think somehow in this town in D.C., they thought that the antitrust is this silver bullet to decentralization. It's one part, one arrow in a quiver, but it, there's a lot more that, in my view, is required. Yeah, and let's and let's sort of continue down that that path. I mean, one of the more interesting aspects of sort of the modern organization of of the firm, right, is is that you know, um, and we've talked about that numerous times on, on this podcast with different uh, best-selling authors um, as well, uh, is is that the firm is increasingly being replaced by teams, particularly as economies have gone digital and, 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 and have been able to sort of leverage uh, varying aspects of uh, the digital economy. So you have more dispersed teams or at least flatter teams. What you know, when when you think about that that general trend in terms of how different companies, you know, even startup companies are sort of organizing themselves, um, against the backdrop of antitrust policy, you know, and the fact that you know size can help, but you know we have to have a healthy skepticism of of, of size and the activities of particularly big companies. Why why is it that the benefits of that? of those decentralized teams, of this increased um, uh, scrutiny of of, of these large firms. Why is it that those economic benefits aren't going to Youngstown? I mean, why is it that we're looking at a lot of black and brown communities who are not able to necessarily participate um, in all of the productive um, opportunity that that these new technologies and innovations are are, are bringing to, 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 to market? It's a great question. I mean, first, even if you break up Facebook, even if you uh, have antitrust enforcement of these companies, and if that just means that there are three Facebooks now in Menlo Park and Sand Hill Road, that's not going to lead to the decentralization of opportunity. Now, the COVID experiment with remote work created more opportunity for decentralization, where people woke up and said, wow, there's talent everywhere. Maybe people can live in Youngstown, Ohio, or in 
Columbia, South Carolina, and we can uh, recognize geniuses in every zip code, as Mitch Kapoor said, and we ought to be uh, having these distributed teams and we ought to be taking advantage of talent. But there are things that we need to do to uh, to facilitate that. First is overcoming uh, cultural bias. Uh, the uh, I facilitate a program which I write about in the book with Claflin, which is one of the great HBCUs. And uh, I put them in touch with a couple tech companies and they were sending 4.0 students that no one was getting a job. Finally, I, it was a bit embarrassing for me. I said, what's going on? And uh, I got Zoom to to do the partnership with uh, uh, Claflin and, and Representative Clyburn. And Zoom said, well, some of those folks never had whiteboard interviews. And there was this whole cultural bias against people who hadn't done whiteboard interviews. So we, we, we have to overcome overt bias, but we also have to overcome some of the cultural barriers and have better public-private partnerships to have an on-ramp uh, to people getting uh, these opportunities. And we've got to have much more investment in the digital programs uh, in, in these uh, uh, places. I mean, look, uh, the Stanford endowment is $37 billion. The entire endowment of HBCUs is $3.6 billion. The land-grant universities' entire endowments are not uh, probably significantly even adding up to what Stanford's endowment is. So what are we doing in terms of the investment there in getting people credentials uh, and pathways to these jobs? I, I think the president should announce we're going to have 1 million digital jobs in rural America and 1 million digital jobs in black and brown communities and convene tech leaders at the land-grant universities and HBCUs and help uh, have that vision by 2025. You know, I have to say, I really like the idea and it spoke to me. I, I mean, when you think about it and, and and what you're proposing, it may sound a, a bit edgy, but it's always really been a part of the national policy. I mean, when you look back, this idea that whether it be Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee or NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama, that really every region in the country should have its own world-class technology center. And you're pushing on that thread to reach communities that, especially in today's innovation economy, are being left out. And, and that's really interesting. Um, you know, in those same pockets, are, there's also a lot of hidden know-how as well. At the land-grant schools, the HBCUs, the, the minority banks, you know, when you think about their understanding to or of their customers, where access to technological production could lead to some really interesting and exciting developments and insights. But, you know, getting that done isn't easy. We, we've had guests before really talk about the fact that even though Silicon Valley does an amazing job creating ideas and innovation, you know, many of these ideas and those innovations are being used outside the country. And it's been pretty ineffective at really importing those ideas uh, uh, and, of course, opportunities internally. Besides uh, the issue of bias, are there any other reasons indicating why it's particularly hard to crack the code for decentralized uh, economic opportunity when it comes to rural and minority communities? There has been no intentionality. So in other parts of the world, there were programs to go to rural areas, to go to particular places, to train people on some of the digital opportunities. Uh, they're doing that now in robotics process automation, which is basically how do you make a bot to uh, to help automate uh, different types of services online. You know, the person on DoorDash or the automated uh, customer service agent that comes online. And how do you do that? And that doesn't require that sophisticated uh, of skills. And PeopleSure actually is doing it in 
Clarksville, Mississippi, where they uh, partnered and they've hired uh, a number of uh, young uh, African-Americans who are making 25 bucks an hour now, and it's a great job. But there was an intentionality there. Uh, in the past, that the, that uh, owner uh, said, look, I saw all this happening in rural India, and I don't know why we're not doing that in the United States. I don't think there was enough, there's been enough focus here uh, in our country on jobs, on uh, on preparing people for jobs. There's just been a focus, well, we're going to invent things, and there's a knowledge economy, and let the market determine where that'll be, and go move to, to, to that opportunity. And I think from the the flaw of the Democratic Party, one of the flaws is there hasn't been enough focus in place. And two, all of the talk is redistribution post-economic production, which is fine. I'm for taxing the billionaires in my district. I'm for a wealth tax. I'm for Medicare for all and free public college and uh, universal preschool. But that's not enough. Uh, why is it that 70% of people in my district are optimistic about America? Don't you think people in other parts of the country have the same dreams? They want to be, they want to have a business. They want to make money. They want to move up in the world. They want to build wealth. We have to give people the opportunities to build wealth in this country. And we have to speak to that. I am so delighted you're talking directly about the aspirations of people on the ground. And I think the idea that folks in rural areas are people and people of color are people and they have the same aspirations as everyone else is is critical you know they as as you said they 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 want to build wealth they want careers jobs investments and and sometimes it just gets lost in debates i i think a similar thing can be said about how uh people talk about regulation whether it be antitrust or consumer protection or securities law where you, you see people who are not really talking with stakeholders and, and, and with um, uh, people, but really at them. And opinions are made about varying tools without asking why people, and, and often people of color, are, are gravitating towards them. Instead, you see in both of the parties, um, at times, a, a bit of a disconnect. I think, um, though, that the irony with the Democrats may be a bit more pronounced, given the comparatively larger number of minorities in the party and their historic claim of at least viewing themselves as the party of the future. But I think there's a a, a good dose of trepidation in town about really asking why people gravitate to technology and a fear about taking that leap to try to figure out how to leverage uh, and embrace innovation in ways that make the most of it to really help people. And I've always just sort of wondered, I mean, like, where where is that trepidation coming from? Well, sometimes the book is a uh, attempt at a marriage between the celebration of innovation and entrepreneurship and uh, egalitarian ideals that everyone should have an equal opportunity and an equal shot. We need technology. We need innovation to address climate. We need it to make advances in health. And young people instinctively understand that a lot of that technology is their pathway uh, to producing wealth. And in some cases, like crypto, people have uh, who have been the most excluded, who aren't invest, who aren't getting the offers to be in the fem- friends and family rounds for IPOs, who aren't sitting on the venture capital, who aren't investing in the stock market. They say, "Well, this is my avenue to try to make something, to try to build build wealth." I think too often. We are so focused on the fundamental rights, which are important. You should have the fundamental right to vote. Nothing matters more. You should have the fundamental right to walk in the street without having uh, a police officer abuse or harass you. But that doesn't mean that that's sufficient. I mean, when you talk to young people, which I 
do at these colleges, they have the same dreams. They want to say, how do I get funded for my company? How do I get a job that can get me a slightly bigger house? How, how do I have my dreams? And by the way, how do we make sure that the racial wealth gap in this country isn't increasing, which it is right now because of the exclusion of black and brown communities uh, from the biggest vehicles of modern wealth generation? And I think that this has been a blind spot in um, our policies, and we have to really focus on speaking to that and, and, and acting concretely on giving people uh, those opportunities, which at least anecdotally, I think uh, people want, and they just feel that they haven't had really the opportunity to do it. You know, when you think about wealth creation in the country and the ladder of building an economic life in the United States, you can sort of think of the first rung as being owning a home and building equity in, in, in your house and where you live. And then climbing the ladder involves participating in the economy. And for a privileged few, that means owning a business. But really, for most of us, that participation comes in owning financial assets like stocks and bonds. And as we're seeing recently, even cryptocurrencies. And when you get to that last category, the Web3 crypto space, and this is something I think you were getting to in your last answer, you see some really interesting things. You see moms in Atlanta and, and Detroit looking at the first iteration of the internet and telling their kids, hey, you know, we don't want you to be flat-footed and we want you to at least understand that technology. And, you know, you see all kinds of really interesting conversations about it. Um, now, many policymakers have stressed the risk that attaches to the unknown, which obviously makes a lot of sense. I mean, technology carries all kinds of downsides that you write about in your book. But when you talk about wealth, there is also a risk in not acting, in, in inaction, from in short, not participating in activities or sectors of the economy that appear to be growing. And, and that could be uh, a pivotal uh, to the country's future. How do you balance those? I mean, how do you craft policy in uh, uh, industries like crypto? Well, first, we ought to, in my view, celebrate this idea of Web 3.0. It's not jargon. It's not some buzzword. It means simply decentralization. If you're a progressive, you shouldn't be for a lot of the power center to be in just New York or Silicon Valley. You should say, yeah, it'd be great if we could figure out how more people have participation in a, a digital economy. By the way, not just in the United States, but around the world where so many people are unbanked. There are people unbanked in the United States, but think about how many people uh, around the world. And if there are technologies that may allow someone to have a small business and have access to a global market because suddenly it becomes easier to have payment, we should celebrate that. If there are ways that a token makes it easier for people to have uh, an equity stake in a company or participation stake, we should celebrate that. Now, we have to be mindful that uh, there have been a lot of scams. There have been uh, people who have been selling these uh, crypto assets and they've gone up and they go down and there's volatility and there's risk. And so there has to be reasonable regulation to protect people. But what it tells me is that there is a hunger out there uh, for people who have been excluded from wealth generation, who feel that their lives aren't getting better than their parents' lives, uh, who really fear that, to say, what are our avenues? Where, how can we participate? I think providing more digital opportunities, providing more dispersion of capital in general will help address that. So you don't have to just win the lottery ticket in in a bet uh, to, to, to make it, and then having uh, 
decentralizing technologies that give people more uh, participation and access with with appropriate uh, regulations. But fear mongering about these things or being anti crypto, anti decentralization, anti Web three point uh, One, it's just being against some of the technology that's happening. Two, I don't think it's taking people seriously for their full aspirations, which is that they want to uh, create wealth, build wealth, build opportunity, and that they're not having feeling that they have those uh, chances. Ro, you are one of the most original and 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 and, and thoughtful um, thinkers, and now writers uh, in Congress. It was it's it's a remarkably good read. I mean, it's 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 a very well written book, and this is coming from the law professor. Well, I, I'm honored by that. I, I would get a decent grade in your class. So, uh, <laughs> oh no, no, you you definitely get the A. And 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 thank you so much, so much, sir, for for joining the podcast. I appreciate I appreciate all your work on financial inclusion, and you're a big asset to the United States Congress, and and not just me, to uh, so many people, the Financial Services Committee, and I look forward to continuing to work together. We've spent a good deal of time talking about decentralization on this podcast and the idea that 19th century ideas like vertically integrated firms are giving way to decentralized teams dispersed organizationally and even geographically across the country. Of course, the big question to come is whether or not either of these can provide mechanisms for pushing the decentralization of opportunity that network effects tend to cannibalize. Representative Khanna's book, Dignity in a Digital Age, offers brilliant and nuanced answers, and a perspective that is thoughtful, serious, and, dare I say, politically courageous. Now, regardless of your party, it's just the kind of thing that the country needs more of in the moment, and we wish him all the best of luck in bringing his ideas to life in the upcoming months. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.